pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. I guess I'm, I'm sort of proud of my performances in this series. I, I set myself very high standards and uh, I wanted to lead from the front um, with my performances in this series. And I've sort of been very intense in, in my own little bubble and um, at times I've I've let my emotions and, and actions, you know, just falter a little bit and I apologise for that throughout this series and, um, you know, that's a big stride for me moving forward and, and something that I can really learn from and and continue to grow as an individual and as a leader. Do you think, given the record in Asia, do you think this tour, the team, has made a giant stride in the right direction playing in Asia? Absolutely. Uh, I think this team's grown so quickly. Um, we're still a very young side and it wasn't too long ago that we were at Hobart and it was the end of the world. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of the way that, that we've been able to, to turn things around and, and really compete in these conditions. Um, I know coming over here, I've said it a few times that we've been written off and you know we were going to lose 4-0 and all that kind of stuff. But the way we've been able to compete in, in each and every test match, uh, it's been it's been great to be a part of and a, a fantastic series that's, um, you know, it's been played in a, a good style and um, credit's got to go to India for, for winning the series 2-1. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menas, and just like Steve Smith, I am prone to letting my emotions get the better of me as he discussed there following the fourth test defeat against India. And joining me for the final episode of the summer, I have Paul Dennett. Welcome, Paul. How are you? Great, man. It's great to be here. And after a long absence from the show, Kiwi Bob is back. Welcome to the show, Kiwi Bob. How are you? Yeah. Hey, Paul. Hey, Menas. Thanks for having me, mate. Uh, great that you guys could be here. Joe and Macca are upset that they couldn't be here for the final show of the summer, but I had to relegate them to the bench after their recent performances. You've been listening to them, Bob. Have you enjoyed the recent podcast? Uh, yeah, I certainly have. And um, I've got to say, it's a pleasure to sit in the founder's chair um, over here with you. And um, I think some of the uh, shows over the summer have been great. You know, you've had Lisa Stalaker, Ben Horn, Gav, Joshi phoning it in from India. And But I don't think anything can really beat the, the last 10 minutes of, of last week's episode, actually, with uh, yourself, Joe, and Macca. Just, just, you, know, you know what it is, good Bob? Banter. We genuinely annoy each other that's the thing when we get in a room together we've all known each other for quite a while so we genuinely needle away at each other so it's actually genuine tension in the air a lot of the time now in this show there's going to be no tension because i've got two level-headed panelists here and we're going to review the australia india fourth test debacle we're going to look back over the whole series then we're going to wrap up all the news before the podcast takes a break and we're going to bring it all home with our highlights of the cricket summer. So let me just go through what's happening for the podcast before we get into the analysis. Uh, So the regular panel shows are taking a break for a couple of months. And one good thing about the IPL is it does give a natural window for the podcast as well as the players to play in the IPL. So while the IPL is going on, there's going to be a special series Last year, the Autumn Series began, and it will continue this year. This year, the Autumn Series will feature four long-form interviews with uh, journalists, broadcasters, and cricketers around the game. The first release is the 10th of April and kicks off with an interview with Alison Mitchell from 
ABC Grandstand, BBC, uh, all all over the place. So that's what's going to happen while the IPL is on. And then when the IPL is over, after those the autumn series, we'll get back to the panel show just in time for the Champions Trophy. Uh, so the, the test stuff is over, guys, but we're going to get into the white ball cricket after the break. So a bit of a, a change of speed. Yeah, looking forward to the Champions Trophy. It's a while away, and it's actually good to have that break because it's been so tumultuous these last few weeks as an Australian cricket fan. It'll, it will be good to uh, put away the patriotism for a while and then dial it back up to see if Australia can win an ICC uh, tournament in England. Everything stops for the IPL. I mean, it's the only time when the international cricket calendar really does take a break now. So it's it's sort of uh, it's the off-season. The IPL is the Australian off-season. Yeah, money talks, doesn't it? Money does talk. And now let's get on and talk about the defeat by Australia in the fourth test. I made a fool of myself on British radio last week by going on record as saying that Australia would win the fourth test. I was categorical about that announcement and it sounded even worse as the show was replayed throughout the week uh, after the defeat. So, yep, but Australia did not win the fourth test. They lost by eight wickets. And let's start with you, Paul. What went wrong for Australia in the fourth test? Well, firstly, I I don't think you made a fool of yourself. I thought uh, you were very eloquent, and I think it's far better to have an interesting opinion than be bland. I thought if anyone gets a chance to listen to Menes' appearance on um, Talk Sport, it was excellent. Um, As for the... the Thank thank you very much. (laughs) uh, As for the fourth test, look, I think that ultimately... um, India were a little bit too good. And I think that the inclusion of the left arm leg spinner was an inspired choice by them. And ultimately, I think that's what proved the difference. Kuldeep Yadav. Yeah, I want to start with that one point on the first day when Australia was one for 144 after winning the toss. Coley had pulled out of the match. Steve Smith and David Warner were together. And at that point, I thought the test match was there to be taken for Australia. That from one for 144, if they could go on from there and make 450, 500, it was going to make it very difficult to India to get back into the game. But from them to lose five for 64 in 100 minutes and collapse to be all out for 300 was a very early turning point in the game. Yeah, I think a lot of people were counting on David Warner to actually sort of assert uh, himself uh, because he had missed out in the previous three games, hadn't he? It's almost and, more and he got frustrating a bit of a that he got a start and yeah. then couldn't convert it to 100. That's right. And, and well, I th- so I think there was a lot of pressure on that first innings. I think Australian batters knew that they needed a big score there to set the match up, as you say. And I think that, you know, they spent such a long time in the field in the third test. But that was kind of in a sense, almost soul-destroying. There was a, an interview, a post-match interview after the third test with Steve Smith where he said, it's a, a very Kiwi thing to say, actually, where he said that the draw actually felt like a win in a lot of ways. And that I think that, to me, sort of spoke to the mentality of the team. It's almost like they didn't believe, you know, so they needed a good first innings to bring that confidence back. And, uh, yeah, as you say, the collapse just sort of knocked the sails, knocked well, the wind out of the sails. As you said, Paul, Kuldeep Yadav bowled a couple of corkers, one to get Peter Hanscom to bowl well, yeah. dry, uh, dr- through the gate, and uh, Glenn Maxwell with, seemed like a wrong one, but I don't know, it seemed to go straight on. But two really good balls, that that just cut the, the heart out of Australia's middle order. But it was one shining light. And, and as is a regular segment in the show, it's the Steve Smith stats section, because, again, there's just more and more records. I do a whole podcast on just Steve Smith's broken records. So this week, he's got 111 off 173 in the first innings. Was the only one to really 
take it to the Indian attack on that first day was his 20th test century. So to, to reach 20 test centuries, there was a bloke called Don Bradman who did it in 55 innings. Then Matt Hayden and Sonny Gavaskar did it in 97 innings. And Steve Smith did it in 99 innings. So he's in the pantheon of some of the great players ever. And as good as Hayden and Gavaskar uh, were, being opening batsmen, they probably had a little bit more opportunity to, to build in innings in the second innings more often, especially Steve Smith coming in later in, in the innings early on. Smith is at that amazing point that only Ricky Ponting in recent times has been at, where he, he genuinely has got a chance of having a long career and having a batting average um, in excess of 60. And that's an absolutely extraordinary situation to be in. Yeah, he's ranked so well on the ICC <clears throat> rankings that even this 100, it, it didn't move his score on the ICC ranking points table. He had to score like a double 100 to, to increase his score. That's a, He's basically clocked the game at this point. That's exactly the point I was about to make. Was, oh, sorry. No, no, so, um, that's a wonderful point. Well, well said. <laughs> but yeah, he's um, he's he's in rarefied air. He's only um, only Bradman, Hutton, Hobbs, and Ponting have ever been higher than him in the history of the game. Amazing. Well, it's amazing to watch. Let me just finish off the records. He's the first ever Aussie tourist to score three centuries over there in a series. He's only ever the sixth batsman to do that. Score three centuries on a tour there. And it's his seventh test century versus India. So he's scored seven of his 20 hundreds against India. So I'm pretty sure they're sick of the side of him. And it really is frustrating because if someone had supported him more or got or in the middle order had gone on with it, we could have got that score. And he looked so imperious. It almost it deserved to win that innings. Of course. But I think part of the reason that others didn't support him is that it's hard. And he's just so much better than everybody else. I put a, a stat out there before his second innings. And this is a, a silly stat, but I liked it. That if he scored 19 consecutive golden ducks or, or ducks, he still would have had a, a higher test batting average than Viv Richards. That's the sort of level he's at. So you can't blame others for not batting as well as him. No. Are we into a stage of the podcast where we're competing on who's get, got the best stat? Um, <laughs> we'll get some stats on that later. <laughs> yeah. So Okay, so the second thing that went wrong for Australia in this match, after being bowled out for 300, they had the possibility of having India, what, seven for 226 on the second afternoon, but Renshaw spilled the chance off Saha, and that kept the Jadeja-Saha combination for the third morning. So we we missed the chance of getting a first-innings lead because of that catch. So that was, I think, the first over with the second new ball, and then Jadeja and Saha batted well, and eventually India made 332. So a crucial catch there by Renshaw. Yeah, it was it was it was ghastly watching it because it was a sitter, in as much as it was going very very quickly. I wouldn't have laid a hand on it, but um, it was it was one that should have been taken. And as you said, man, it was a turning point for sure. We shouldn't ignore a great effort by the bowlers in the Indian first innings. Nathan Lyon took five for ninety two, his ninth five wicket haul. Paddy Cummins took three for ninety four, a really good effort by our bowlers. And even at that stage when we'd coughed up a 32-run lead. I thought Australia had a really good chance if they could bat well in the second innings and even make 200, setting India 170 would have been a tough chance. Am I wrong there? I think we had a real chance. Yeah, we did. And India bowled really well, and their, and their quicks bowled really well. Umesh Yadav uh, out-bowled all of the Australian quicks throughout the, se- the series, which is a big, a big effort. Um, so you've got to give credit to them. And I think Australia... Uh, I mean, ultimately, this tour is a massive success, which sounds strange given Australia lost. But one thing I think they probably did wrong was 
Wade and Cummins, when they had a, a little bit of a partnership forming, they just started blocking and blocking and blocking, and there was just no way forward with that. They had to play aggressively. Even Maxwell, who played so well, did get a little bit bogged down towards the end. They needed to say, well, our only chance is to play a few shots and get some sort of lead, and they didn't quite do that. Yeah, to, to illustrate your point, Paddy Cummins, 12 of 49 deliveries and you and I saw him in the big bash hitting the spinners all over the place I mean he'd been better off taking the long handle and and trying to get a quick 20 or 30 and and change the dynamics of that innings as he'd done in the in the first innings exactly but as well going back to the beginning of Australia's second innings frustrating that Warner Renshaw and Smith all went to the new ball that put an incredible amount of pressure on our middle order and for the second time in this game when the series and the border Gavaskar trophy was on the line our relatively inexperienced middle order was not able to get over the line I thought Sean Marsh's injury came at the worst possible time very unsettling so so much criticism is leveled at Sean Marsh and then for him for his back to go when the series is on the line it must have been unsettling for Hanscom when you're in number five. All of a sudden, you have to come in at number four. The test match is on the line. It was just really frustrating. And I thought our inexperience in that final innings came through. Definitely. Uh, that's, I mean, absolutely, that's what you put it down to, isn't it? It's, um, you know, it's experience under pressure that comes out in those big match situations, you know. And, and you could tell, you know, I had, I had really high hopes for Hanscom for this tour. I thought he plays the ball with soft hands. He plays it late. I think he uses the area sort of between third man and point really well and I thought he would actually do a lot better than he did so I'm slightly just disappointed um, even though it's relative to the other batters it's probably not so bad but um, I think Maxwell um, Maxwell was impressive but, uh, but you're right unlucky. they needed some support I thought Maxwell was very unlucky yeah, was watching it? that live actually I couldn't believe he gave it out I couldn't believe the finger went up because I thought Maxwell actually came down the, down the pitch a little bit and of course when it went to review you could see it was umpire's call on both line and, uh, and ball tracking so yeah, but unlucky there, Maxi. Actually, to be honest, yeah, he was unlucky. It was. I mean, I can't complain. Ultimately, ball tracking showed it was hitting the stumps, but um, it was one of those ones. It was very much fifty-fifty. Although I think impact. Did they rule that he played a shot? I don't think he played a shot. So I don't. They think... ruled that he didn't play a shot. Yeah. So impact was mm. kind of academic anyway because it still would have stayed with the umpire's decision. But live when I was watching it, I think I was watching it on delay, and I for about five minutes, and I actually hit pause before the umpire had given his decision to walk away and just shake my head because I was just so certain he was going to give it out. And then I pressed play, hoping that he wouldn't. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a shame because he was the one player left who could take that game away from India. It didn't happen. Australia were rolled for 137 with the trophy on the line and India chased down 106, losing only two wickets. Australia lost the series 2-1. India are now the third team ever behind Australia and South Africa to hold all the bilateral test trophies at once. And it's their fourth series victory at home in a row versus Australia. Sorry? I was just smiling because I was going to make a stupid point. I was, no. going to make, I was presuming when England won the Ashes in the 1880s, they also could have said that. <laughs> well, I think that's about the, the only time that's going to happen. Yeah, so, um, you know, I was so confident that Australia, when it came down to it, would win this match. They, they had held on so bravely in that third test match. It was pretty soul-destroying for me, actually. I don't know. I, I sat there on that third afternoon as Australia collapsed, and I, 
I thought about all the tweets I was going to get from England and I just thought about how close we had come and the fact that we had an opportunity to win the series, not just in this match, but in earlier matches in the series and we just let it slip through our fingers. I mean, it's a young side and you've got to credit them for their performance, but Mm. it was pretty heartbreaking to lose at the end there. Yeah, and, and I think that speaks to how well the team actually played. Because if you, you if you roll back the tape to to when the uh, when they, when they were in Dubai training and we were making fun of the uh, Sri Lankan T Twenty series, um, you know the expectations were incredibly low. You know people like uh, myself were tweeting four nil and we we weren't being uh, mocked. You know it was ex- almost expected, and uh, to come to the point where you know we're in the last game and we and we're still in with a chance, right? That uh, it just says how far they've come, and you're right. It's a young side. A lot of these guys, it's their first Test tour to India, and they'll be better for it next time. So let's wrap up the whole series now. Everyone's talking about it as being one of the the best Test series in a long time. So let's give it a full series wrap, and we're going to do it in three categories. We've got the good, the bad, and the ugly. You can pretty much guarantee that one Virat Kohli is in that last section. But let's start with the good. As we said, a valiant effort by a young side. The first. Test was a triumph for Australia, humiliating India by 333 runs. A Steve Smith, 499 runs at 71. It was an amazing to watch, but it, he also grew as a person. And I have to say, he did an interview on the ABC following that match, and he almost made me cry the way he was describing his emotions and his passion for winning and and the way that he just puts his whole heart and soul into Australian cricket really came out. Well, he handled himself brilliantly, I thought. I mean, after Coley came out and said that Australia were systemically cheating the the DRS <clears throat> and then provided no evidence, and I think the, he, the reason that no evidence was provided was probably because there was no evidence, that the fact that then uh, VVS Laxman, Sunil Gavaskar, Kapil Dev, all these players came out in support of Coley and this fanned a, f- a, you know, a furious wave of hostility towards Steve Smith. It would be quite something to be in a country where you know that one billion, three hundred million people are, um, you know, and quite a significant number of them are not very happy with you. Uh, I don't think I would have been able to handle it. Um, the way that he handled it was... Um, absolutely uh, awe-inspiring, in my opinion. Yeah, interesting that Kerry O'Keefe made some comments on the Fox Sports back page show. He said this about Smith. Smith leads from the front. He's finding out about leadership. Is he temperamentally sound enough to be the captain of our country? Probably not because he's so emotional. So that's an interesting take on, you know, this classic idea of what a leader should be. You know, Steve War or very icy or... but. Smith doesn't have that. He really brings his emotions to the fore. I don't agree. Sorry, Bobby, you go. Oh, all I was going to say is that um, you know I can only speak for for myself, and I guess what I've seen in other teams. You know, we're not we're not actually in the dressing room, so we don't. We're watching all of this happen from afar, um, and I, when it comes to to ideal leadership, in my mind, is you want someone who's actually who's actually going to front up to those challenges and actually take them head on and, and not get emotional, actually, and show some steel that the other players, I guess, can can follow. Um, so I tend to sort of agree with O'Keefe, but I'm not saying like we should need to sack Steve Smith or anything. I think he will grow into the job, but I think he's shown some some cracks there that, uh, that I think he has been a little exposed in the story. A little bit impetuous at times, perhaps. Yeah. Well, what did, he, what did he do? He looked up at the at the dressing room for that DRS, which, as I said, there's been no evidence to say that Australia were doing it more than that. And if that was just a one-off, 
I don't understand the outrage that followed. There were people talking about it in, in India as though it was some sort of grave affront to the to the spirit of cricket. I, I think it was just a... I, I completely accept his explanation that it was a, it was a brain fade and a one-off. Then the, the swearing and calling um, uh, VJ a cheat. Yeah, he shouldn't have done that, but he was doing that under his breath in the in the sort of near the confines of the dressing room. I think that those two are the main inc- main things that he did wrong. Um, geez, there's you know um, Coley. I think probably did a lot worse than that. I think taking a broader view of Steve Smith, not just in this series, genuinely he does wear his heart on his sleeve a lot. And mm. you know, you saw throughout the summer when things were going well, he'd, he'd really you could really see in his um, expressions how he felt, um, yeah. unlike Steve Waugh, when you would, just wouldn't know whether Australia was winning or losing because he had the same look on his face. But just to finish up on Steve Smith, the fact that he's able to be so introspective at the end of this series, he said, I've been very intense and in my own little bubble, and at times I've let my emotions and actions just falter a little bit, and I apologise for that. That's a big stride for me moving forward and something I can really learn from and grow as an individual and as a leader. So whereas he may have made mistakes, he's owned up to them and he said, you know, he wants to get better. So I think it's a tremendous example. And you know what he should do to get better? And you're not going to agree with me, Menas. He should say to the Australians, let's cut out the sledging. Um, Well, apparently Lehman said post series and post-match that this team is the quietest Australian team he's ever had and they just want to play cricket and win. And obviously there's a couple of vocal players in that team that stand out, but I think generally this team's quite quiet. Yeah, yeah quite possibly. But um, And I'm saying they should cut it out for two reasons. A, I think it's the wrong thing to do, but B, I think self-interest-wise... If they hadn't, if they if they hadn't said a thing at all, you know, if, if um, Mitchell Stark hadn't been pointing at the at his head after he bowled a bouncer to was it um, uh, Mukund, um, who then top edged him for six, um, if there wasn't all those sorts of things going on, I don't know that Coley would have gone and um, been as on the front foot as he was in that press conference. I think that tensions get raised on the field, and as a result people aren't willing to give each other the benefit of the doubt. I think the Australian team would be yeah. better off in the future just saying, let's just shut up, um, play as hard as we've always played, and they won't invite these um, things to come upon them. Not that they deserved all that they got, but it would be in, self, in, in their own self-interest to, to do it differently, I think. Well, that's Brendan McCullum's theory and the way he shaped his test side. Okay, so let's move on to our second good thing for the Australians in the series and it was the spinners I thought Nathan Lyons 19 wickets at 25 and Stephen O'Keefe's 19 wickets at 23 were a real a real achievement they never got collared by the Indian batsmen they always seemed to have some control on the game and I thought a really good effort by both our spinners yeah absolutely and they both had uh, periods where they were absolutely dominant O'Keefe in the first test match um, and Lyon, especially in the in the first innings of the second Test match, and then yeah, at, at other periods they were you wouldn't say innocuous, but they posed a lot less of a threat. But as you said, Minners, they never got collared. Um, you can't mm. fault their figures, and I think before the series, every Australian cricket fan would definitely have been happy to accept those figures from them. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, you probably can't fault any of the bowlers to be honest, other than maybe Stark for getting injured. But uh, but uh, yeah, they they did incredibly well. There were no scores over sort of four fifty. Um, there was one innings where it felt like India batted for three weeks, but other than that, but they still kept the runs down, as you said. They seemed um, to sit on O'Keefe after the first test and be content not to really go after mm, him, yeah. knowing that his game was to just pin them down. They didn't fall into the trap yeah. of trying to take him on too. He often. humbled them. He humbled the the Indian batters, as did Lyon, which was such a, such an incredible sight to see. After England had just finished playing four tests and they were playing three spinners at times, 
and they were getting clobbered all over the place. So, so it's, it's an absolute uh, big tick to, to Lion and Soccer. Two great returns to the Australian side in this series. Paddy Cummins, eight wickets in two tests, and everybody is just salivating at the thought of Stark and Cummins bowling a few bounces. The new English captain, Joe Root, later this summer, and then later this year. And then you've got Glenn Maxwell as well returning to the side. Uh, you know, such a divisive figure, but you, know, you couldn't ask for more. Scored a century, looked good in that last test, and he's going to even look better in a New South Wales cap next summer. <laughs> Have you heard anything further on that minute? I think he's coming. He's staying <laughs> on your couch, Paul. Have you he's welcome there, but yeah. I think you'll be. I think he'll be a yeah. victorious. Still. And how impressive in the field as well. You know, there was a really crucial run out, and then one almost, almost uh, run out. And the thing is, I've been a really harsh critic. You two have been actually been uh, supporters of getting Maxwell into the Test team, Paul yourself especially. Um, and I was very critical, not because I didn't think he was good enough but because I didn't think he was ready. I didn't think he was mentally there, you know? So when I think of a guy like Maxwell, I think he's one of the most exciting players in the world. I, I put him in, in an echelon with like a Kevin Peterson or a Verenda Saywag. I think when they're on and when they're in the right headspace, they can do anything. But then we have other examples. You, you have a Rohit Sharma or perhaps a Brendan McCullum, who if he lived in Australia, he probably wouldn't have been picked in the test side, right? But even though he had all the ability. So I think what impressed me the most was that first innings with Maxwell, he put his head down and he actually, you know, he put away all the silly shots and uh, he, he just got it done. It was unbelievable the way he played. I couldn't believe I was watching Glenn Maxwell. Um, it was so impressive. So I was going to say, it's such a pity that in that, um, you know, if that this LBW dismissal in the second innings of the, of, the, of the final test match, if that had been five centimetres further to the, to the leg side and he'd been given a reprieve, um, who knows what he could have done if he yeah. um, could have gone on and, and maybe gone on and got, got 100 and made it a match-winning 100. He certainly had that within him. Another good thing out of this series for Australia was saving the third test match. Australia have notoriously not been able to not been able to bat for draws, but they showed that they could do it, and that's just great experience for the future because I'm I'm sure some of these players will be in the same situation again, and knowing mm. they've done it once will be a, a big a, a tick for them. That was an amazing performance that saving, and um, when Hanscom and Sean Marsh came together, I, I gave Australia very little chance of saving it, and. You know, you can criticise Sean Marsh as we will for, for for some of his failings in the rest of the series, but that innings was was magnificent, yeah. and Hanscom was magnificent, and you know, a draw from that those circumstances it just doesn't happen. Even the best Australian sides would seem to would seem to lose from I there. Mean, history says it doesn't happen. I think it's only ever happened six or seven times before in India. So it really was an amazing effort to save that third test so there's a lot of good things to take out of this series from australia yes paul just one other good thing about the series was the series itself that yeah so often test cricket is played in front of no one and matches that sort of go nowhere this i would challenge anyone in the world to have come up with a more captivating sporting contest than what has gone on over the past uh, month two very different nations very different cultures going out at hammer and tongs and although there was a lot of unpleasantness for the most part, still, the, you know, what I saw on Twitter, it's, it's a fairly good relationship that Australia and India have. And I just think that this is a template that Test Cricket needs to, you know, to, to learn a lot from. There's still some things that could be done better, but this rivalry is up there with anything in world sport and it should be cherished by everyone who, who follows it. And we should try to look for the positives rather than always look for the negatives because with the different cultures and with the modern way, it very easily gets very negative very quickly, but it was a wonderful series, and we shouldn't forget that. 
Yeah. Oh, well said, Paul. Very, very well said. Now, let's go, though, to the bad. Lots of good things, but now some bad things from this series, especially for Australia. So I, I, I flip-flop like a rusty gate with this, but I'm going to say I think Renshaw, in the end, didn't have a great series. I thought when we really needed Renshaw, he went missing, and I think that he and Shaw Marsh were too similar in style for that order. So, uh, yeah, I'm putting Renshaw in the bad category uh, for this series. Now, I want to answer that with a trivia question. What does Matthew Wade have the distinction of being the leader of in this series from a statistical point of view? Banter. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Most runs by a left-hander. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Um, highest average by a left-hander. He averaged 32.66. That's across both sides. It was very hard being a left-hander in this series. That um, the, the rough outside the left-hander's uh, off stump was getting made up very quickly. And you'd see times when, um, you know, the right hand would be facing and it was fairly easy. Then the left hand would come on strike and it was absolutely diabolical. So I think I still give Renshaw a tick because of that. And I'm willing to, to say that even though he only averaged 29, um, he, he, he played well enough for me to think that he's a, a player for the future. Yeah, and just another comment on Renshaw. You, you mentioned it earlier, Paul. The Australian, sorry, the Indian fast bowlers, you know, Umesh Yadav, Vishen Sharma, you know, Bhuvneshwar Kumar, I think I pronounced that right. They were outstanding. I haven't seen an Indian pace attack that consistent. And we, we saw what happened with David Warner. So I think to expect much more from Renshaw, I think, was maybe asking a bit much. Because well, maybe then really I think the down. balance of the side, and we'll get to selections. But, but, but just, just one last thing. This also speaks to just how head and shoulders Steve Smith was above everybody else. Because, we're, I mean, we're bagging him here, but actually Matty Renshaw was the second highest run-getter for Australia in the series. So that's how great Steve Smith is. Well, Renshaw... In the bad category for me, but it's a, it could go either way. David Warner, definitely in the bad category. 193 runs at 24. I just can't believe, after all his IPL experience, that he didn't do better. Graham Hick talked about that perhaps Warner put too much pressure on himself during the series to perform, and he certainly did because, I mean... He, you really needed Warner and Smith to have big series if we were to win the Border Gavaskar Trophy over there. Yeah, Warner was disappointing. There's no question about that. He did, you know, he did bat well in the in the, the first innings of the final test. He he did also a couple of times with Renshaw get us off to some decent starts. And mm-hmm. in that the first test match that we won, um, we got 250 in the first innings, and that was. Um, there was a big hitting from Stark that got us to that. But at the first, the start of the day, looking back at how difficult that pitch was, Renshaw and Warner's opening partnership was was pretty good. Again, a left-hander um, averaged 20... Where has he gone here? He averaged 24 for the series. You know, only one left-hander averaged above 30 for the whole series. So disappointing, but um, I, I'll give him some sort of um, compensation for some of those factors. Yeah, well, I think it was unfortunate that we couldn't rely on him to take the game away from India in that fourth, uh, that second innings for Australia when we sort of, this, the stage was set for a Warner yeah. innings yeah. to get us off to a good start and it didn't happen. He also did have one very, very close LBW as well that was, um, it was an umpire's, it was umpire's call by about a millimetre on, on, on impact and had that not been given. And I think he'll have nightmares about that Jadeja full toss that he smacked back Yeah, that in. too. <laughs> 
We all have nightmares about that. Now, the other bad thing is the selectors' use of the number six position, not just in this series, but all summer. I think the selectors haven't really worked out what they want from this number six position. We've started the summer with Mitch, Mitch Marsh at six, then we had Nick Madsen, then we had Hilton Cartwright for a test match, then we went back to Mitch Marsh, then we finished with Glenn Maxwell at number six. And what I don't understand is at times the number six position wasn't bowling. They were saying they needed to pick an all-rounder, but they weren't bowling. We had 210 overs of torture for the Australian attack in the third test match, and Maxwell bowled four of them. So there's something, there's some miscommunication between what the selectors are saying and what Smith wants. And I think we need to clarify, is the number six an all-rounder, a batsman, what, and what we're going to do with it? Well, I mean, that's the one really bad decision that the Australian team did in that whole tour, that... You know, they did a few things wrong and a few things right, but you, you're always going to make mistakes. But I think picking Mitchell Marsh over Maxwell, particularly the second test match, we lost that second test match by about 70-something runs. Maxwell averaged 40 for the series. Mitchell Marsh averaged, averaged 12. There's 56 runs differential there across two innings. That's basically... And I, I know you can't say that Maxwell would have performed like that, but we may well have won the second test had he been picked and we would have won the Border Gavaskar Trophy. It's as simple as that. It's a tough one, isn't it? The number six position. It, you look through the through the history books, and I, I mean, it's not my first time on the show. I've mentioned this many times, but I want to see a proper batsman at six. That's it. Looks like that's what Steve Smith wants as well now. Um, so maybe he'll get his wish, and maybe Maxie actually uh, is is going to fill that void, and, and we can stop this sort of conveyor belt of of uh, bits and pieces all rounders. You know. Well, I want an answer then from Steve Smith about does he think Glenn Maxwell can bowl at all, or does he think he's mm. not able to bowl? Because I, I, pers- that I don't was think just he's a so weird bowler. the way he treated Maxwell in that third test. I mean, if you're bowling 210 overs and you don't give your fifth bowler 10, 15 overs, yeah. there's something wrong there. You know where he was coming from? And I don't agree with him. I agree with you, Menas, but I think that I can understand his position. And that was, he's saying to himself, we're determined that if we can't get wickets, we're going to really strangle the scoring here. And on that day when we were all witnessing a partnership between, was it Pajara and uh, Rahane? Rahane, I think. That we were thinking, oh, the game is going away from us here. He, he, he was saying, well, okay, it did get away from us, but they never smashed us. And I think he was fearful that if he'd brought on, you know, second-tier bowlers, that the collaring might have occurred. I don't agree with him. I think that you, we, we should definitely have given um, Maxwell more of a bowl and Mitchell Marsh. I think he might have been injured for, for a point, uh, but I think that was his mindset. Yeah, but um, there, there comes a point where you've got to say, you know, the definition of insanity is just going, doing the same thing over and over again. And how many times have we seen it in Test cricket where a part-time bowler has come on and has actually produced something from the batsman. Definitely. Well, an interesting um, thing there, Menas, is Rahane brought on Kuldeep Yadav after lunch on that first day of the fourth test when Australia won for 150. He got all the wickets. You, you probably say that had Smith been captain, he probably would have started up with Ashwin and Jadeja, and, and maybe Australia would have got away. So, you know, it's worth giving the part-timers a go, not that Yadav's a part-timer. Mm. So, yeah, that's something they have to sort out, is work out what they want from the number six position. And just to finish the bad from the series, I think, as you alluded to there, Paul, Australia had real chances to win both the second and fourth tests in this series and that obviously would have retained the trophy so I mean after two days in Bengaluru when Australia was you know getting ahead of the game I thought this series was ours and in the end India have clawed their way back into it so I think that's bad for Australia the opportunity slipped through their fingers well there's a time in the third test where we would have been um, very very strong favorites to win as well so you know we could have won it 4-0. <laughs> Good 
Can we go back, please, and do do a do over? <laughs> All right, so we're going to come back with the ugly from this series, but I just want to play a an audio clip of Steve Smith speaking about an unfortunate incident that happened on the final day of the series, and I really think this is in poor taste, where the BCCI put up a clip of Matthew Wade sledging Judasia, and this is what Smith had to say after the match. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed that um, you know the BCCI sieved through the archives to to find a conversation out in the field that was happening between Maddie and, and um, Jadeja. You know, I think it it's, it's happened between both sides throughout this series, so the fact that they've done that to us is a little bit disappointing. Um, and, and I think usually what's what's said on the field should stay on the field. It's, it's been a, a hard-fought series, and, you know, guys are, are going to say things here and there, and their emotions are, are going to be high, and... Um, you know, up and and so they should be in such a big series. So I was a little bit disappointed by the fact that the the BCCI did bring that out. Well, that was Smith having a bit of a whinge about the BCCI uh, putting Wade up there, chirping away. Jadeja, what do you guys think? Because I think that's a really poor look from the BCCI to put that clip up, especially on the last day of what was a really good series. I agree. I mean, I... I hate sledging and I don't like what they were saying, but that's a side issue here. The BCCI were disgraceful in putting that up. It's a, um, you know, it's, it's a great... Inflammatory as well. Yeah, and just unprofessional immature. And, and immature. And it shows that cricket lacks a powerful ICC. That The ICC should have been under to the BCCI, right? You've brought the game into disrepute or you've, you've you know, possibly even contractually violated what um, you're, you're required to do and absolutely hammered them, but... There's no way that that's going to happen. I think this is a one in- instance here where the BCCI really behaved poorly. This um this might be about to trigger both of you, I guess. But um, I, as a fan, I love it. I absolutely love it. They've been doing it all Indian summer. They've they've released uh, quite a few of these uh, sort of stump mic recordings. Not just so it's not just a one off. That's the first thing. But secondly, Big podcast just uh, just yeah. cut up the stump <laughs> Take mic. the best bits. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I love it for a couple of reasons. One, it confirms what I've always suspected about Matthew Wade, is he's very unoriginal and, and, and boring and a bit of a, uh, just, just a lout, really. It's crude. There was nothing smart about it. Um, so in anything, I think it reflects worse on Wade than it does on the BCCI. That's my take. But also, I agree with you on that, on Wade. Right. Terrible things to say. Yeah. But, yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, I wouldn't be too upset if the ruling did come from the ICC and it said, right, you know, stop stop releasing this stuff. I wouldn't be too upset. But just from a fan's point of view, I got kind of absorbed in the drama of the series, you know. Like, you said it before earlier, Paul, that it was such a great series. But they're not actors out there, Bob. They're not soap actors, you know, on some TV show. They're doing a job. They're playing for their country. The stump mics are supposed to be... For the umpire's decisions, they're not supposed to be there to pull up audio of what they say to each other and then put it on the website. Yeah, well, I mean, that's so that's the understanding, I guess, that the Australian players and maybe the Australian media are operating under. But, you know, if they'd, if they'd done their homework, they would have known that this was a possibility that could have happened because it did happen during the English series. Um, there was some banter, let's say, released. So it's not without precedent. And it's a good uh, point, though, you make. That Australia should have done their homework on that. Uh, yeah. But, but also, at the same time, if it, wasn't, if it didn't make Wade look so... Uh, sort of you know brutish in a sense because that was one of the reasons we were told he was brought into the team was because he was such a great spirit right um but if it didn't i think if it actually cast wade in a in a better light 
I wonder if, if it would have had the same response. Well, we should no. actually say for the listeners, because we haven't actually played the audio, have we? we no. That, um, basically, from what I remember, Wade was saying to Jadeja, why is it that you don't get picked when India play abroad? It's because you're hopeless. And Smith joined in to agree that yeah. you're no good abroad. And... You know, that just is absolutely pathetic from Wade. What a moronic thing to say. Um, Especially when Australia has such a poor record overseas you know, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, what other sphere of life could you get away with that? You know, you would get away with that in any other sport. It's just so so silly. I mean, at the moment, Jadeja has a better bowling average than Dennis Lilly. Like, he's a he's a potential great of the game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, a he's world better number than one, Wade will ever be. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's just... Again, Australia bring this upon themselves in that instance. As I said, a lot of yeah. things I'd say Australia have done wonderfully in this series, but just cut it out. And the, the ICC should say, a bit of, a, a bit of heat, at, uh, heat in the moment, that's fine. But this industrial sledging has got to stop. Got the bloody monk sitting here in the corner. So anyway, this is the, this is the ugly part of the series review. So the BCCI hit the list with being ugly. Matty Wade, by your twos, admission is on the ugly list. Now let's go to Virat Kohli, probably the head of the ugly list. He's a big baby, isn't he? Saying he's not friends with the Aussies now because it got a bit too hot on the field. I mean, give me a break. I mean, what sort of BS is this? I mean, you've had a tough series. You've given as good as you've got. And then at the end of it, you throw your toys out of the cot. I mean, grow up, Kohli. Yeah. God knows what they've said to him, though. I mean, if, if the Wade thing is to go by example... Who knows what they've said? Well, they must have it on the BCCI website somewhere, surely. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they released that at, at his behest and they just couldn't find anything else that it's like was... Um... It's on the dark web. You know, you have to <laughs> get that special software to see yeah. it. I mean, it must have been kind of embarrassing, though. If you put yourself in Coley's shoes, right, and, and imagine the... You know, we talked about one and a half billion people, you know, following you, and it, 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 he's this almost demigod now. He's taken the place of your MS Dhoni or your Sachin Tendulkar, right? And he failed abysmally in the series. He barely yeah, scored a run. But he, he was ugly. Um, His so, press conferences were ugly. Yeah. His dismissals were ugly. His reaction to winning was ugly. His performance in the fourth test was ugly, running the drinks out, telling the captain what to do. I mean, yeah. he so, really has had a stinker. Yeah, I agree with, with all of that. I could forgive him for most of it, but the thing that I think that was really unacceptable, and I said it earlier in the podcast, was him saying that the Australians were systemically cheating the DRS and then having no evidence to prove it. Now, if yeah. there was evidence, it would have come to light. When, when Smith was done for that, everyone knew it instantly. So don't tell me that he's been doing it throughout the rest of the series and no one noticed. Or don't tell me that people haven't poured through the footage and, 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 and not searched for it. They couldn't find it. He needed to come and say, look, I said that in the heat of the moment. There's no evidence for it. I retract that and I apologise for that. And if he'd done that, then I'd have no problems with, it, with the rest of it. I think he's a pretty much an entertaining character. I, I kind of like him. And... Um, I just think he just needs to curb a couple of these crazy things. But when you've got 1.3 billion people supporting you and potentially then tearing you down, it, it would be quite yeah. challenging. Do, do you think, in a, in a way, do you think maybe they've had this sort of chat? You know, Coley's this new sort of firebrand. You know, he's this energetic. He's going to change Indian cricket. And I think, in a, in a sense, now I could be completely wrong, but my imagination, you know, tells me that they've had these sort of dressing room discussions and they've said, actually, and this is a bit of a compliment, they've said, we want to be more Australian. But we actually want to fight fire with fire. I think they definitely have. Yeah. yeah. Just, Collie doesn't know how to do it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the problem. <laughs> no, but they definitely have. And they would then say, and this is a very common theme in Indian media reports at the moment, that when we do fight fire with fire, the Australians can't handle it. Why is it okay when they go crazy? We've got to just accept it. When we fight fire with fire, 
they back away and can't handle it. We would say, well, actually, as you're alluding to, men is there. It's subtly different. There are some things that you shouldn't do. But, but again, I also think that the Australian attitude of on the field, I will call you anything and I will do anything. And then as soon as we walk off the field, you want to come, up a bit, come for a beer, mate? Yeah. I think that is... Um, that's a very hard... Um, Thanks, atti- Pope Paul. Uh, no. <laughs> That's my new comment, the Pope. Now, um, other ugly things. Smith, a couple of times, was ugly. We talked about looking up at the dressing room. Calling, Just a brain fade, it's all right. Yeah, yeah calling VJ and really F and cheat. That, was not, that wasn't so good. <laughs> and then... Yeah, that was, that was another brain fade. Another very ugly incident, I thought, was the way Sean Marsh's test career appears to have ended. You know, such a divisive figure... There was a lot of calls about whether he should be in this test side for this series. He ended up making 151 runs at 19. His back went on him again when we needed him most. And he had just such a meek dismissal in that second innings. I think it's unfortunately going to be a very ugly end to his test career. I, mate, I don't know how you can say that with any confidence. Like and, Until Sean Marsh is, is 65 it, with a walking stick and he, he, he's a tetraplegic. Uh, I've given I'm, him out. He's oh, gone. <laughs> well, Paul, you know, he must is, be gone. I think he's, he's got a son, I think. Um, so his son will be in the side soon as well. We get a third generation Marsh. Well, I, was, I think it's contractually written. Junior Marsh. Can we call him Junior Marsh? <laughs> I feel sorry for him because he, he got that shocking LBW decision that shouldn't have been out. Um, he did play a match-saving innings, but in and around that, um, he played one other decent innings, but in and around that, he looked um, he looked terrible. And I agree with you, Menas. Um, I, I said this for five years before it happened about Mike Kasparovic, but I think Sean Marsh had has played his last um, test match, so... Uh, congratulations on your career, Sean. Well done, Sean. And then finally, uh, the fact that at the end of the series, Steve Smith said to the Indians, we'll open the dressing room up, do you want to come in for a drink? And and basically they said no, just sort of a really ugly end to a great series. It's so tr- such a tradition of the game that at the end of a tough series, you put all your differences aside and have a cold beverage. These days it'd probably be a, a, a Coke or something, but you know, it just didn't, a really ugly end. Yeah, I mean, it's a pity that they didn't go in for a beer. But as I sort of said before, I do think the Australian attitude is, is unique in, in, um, in the, the, the white line. I think the South Africans play to the same theory. I yeah, think they do. The Kiwis do. I think the Poms do. You know, I think India is probably the one that is the outlier here. One of the other ugly incidents that we haven't touched on was the way that that photo was cropped showing... Um, David Warner's yes, hand definitely. on Steve Smith's Hanscom's shoulder. Hand, yeah. uh, it was a Hanscom's hand, mm. and it looked as though Steve Smith was um, mocking Coley's injury. And then VVS Laxman came out and said something like, um, and we've all seen with the death of Philip Hughes how injuries on the cricket field can be um, you know, serious. Now, I've, I've, I'm just paraphrasing him there. But um, that was a pretty pathetic... Yeah, all that stuff just got really nasty yeah. there. Yeah. <clears throat> it really did, from both sides as well. You know, Obviously, we had Hodgie, you know, a guy I really, really respect... You know, saying what he said about Coley and Whether his injury Coley too. Whether Coley was keep staying out of the fourth test yeah. to be ready for the first IPL the game. IPL, he backtracked on that very quickly he when he realised there was a billion Indians after him. All of a sudden, yeah. Brad Hodge was apologising on every media yeah. outlet you could... Well, he probably upset his boss as well, didn't he? But um... Well, apart from anything else, it's just so not true. I actually hadn't heard... I'd heard he'd said something. I didn't realise he said that. That's dopey. Yeah, that uh, was pretty bad. From a smart guy, that's dopey. So let, let's wrap... Let's end this... Leave the series there. Let's end our review. The good, the bad and the ugly of the Border Gavaskar Trophy for 2017. India, congratulations. Deserved winners 2-1. Australia had their opportunities, but we have to wait another four years. Now, speaking of opportunities, it is time for the final have-a-go-your-mug draw. That's right... This is the last draw for the Have A Go Your Mug Mug competition. 
There are five entrants this week for the um, Have A Go Your Mug Mug. We've got Silly Point, M. Luke, Brisket, Paul and Boone Horse. You're all in the running for a mug. And as, uh, Bob, you haven't been here for one before, you can pull out the winner and read it out. All right. All right. The winner of the Have A Go Your Mug Mug is M. Luke. Uh, who head, who titled it Must Listen for Aussie Cricket Fans. So uh, thanks, Luke. Mr. Luke. Um, so just said it was the perfect podcast for the hardcore yet jovial type of fans that live and love Aussie cricket. Menas and his colourful cast of characters consistently produce a fun and surprisingly thoughtful look into everything happening in Australian cricket. Great insight, excellent segments, good quality, a must listen. Stop reading this and download now. Well, thank you for that lovely review. Mr. Luke, please send me your address and you will get a have a go, your mug, mug. And thanks for everybody this summer who took the time to participate in this promotion. Uh, So many great reviews on iTunes all around the world. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to write something about the show. It means a lot to us and um, thank you very much. Now, let's get on to all the news. It's the last show for a while, so there's been a few big news items that have slipped under the radar, but this is the Australian Cricket Podcast. We aren't going to miss them. Let's start with the selection panel restructure. So the Australian selectors have been restructured in that it's the same personnel as Trevor Hones, Mark Raw, and Greg Chappell, but now you're going to have Trevor Hones, Greg Chappell, and Darren Lehman selecting the test and one-day sides, and Mark War and Darren Lehman selecting the T20 sides. You have Chappell and War contracted until 2018 and Hones 2020. Uh, what do you guys think of those changes and the way they've sort of split up the selectors now that they sort of specialise? I think it's a good idea, ultimately. Um, I really do. I, I think just if, there's so much cricket going on, and we, we saw that with the with the T20 series prior to this um, Border Gavaskar. So, you know, having having selectors focused on the limited overs game, uh, as opposed to focused on all cricket, I think is a really good thing. It means the test selectors can actually get out and watch some shield cricket, maybe. And uh, but I think they are very, I think they are very different. I think you need to bring a different skill set to each one. So, on the surface, I think it's okay. I don't know. Well, I mean, the proof will be in the pudding, of course. But Mark War specialising in T Twenty cricket obviously makes sense because he he sees so much of the big bash. Yeah. He has an intimate knowledge of the game. Uh, it is a little bit of a demotion though for Junior, wouldn't you think, Paul? Being knocked out of the test selection ranks? Yeah, definitely. I mean, really, T20 selection is not very important. We other could than, do it, couldn't we? <laughs> other than the um, when it comes to the World T20, which is, there's due to be another one that's been shoehorned in into next year. So for those for the weeks leading up to that, he'll be in an important job. But for the rest of the time, it's almost like he's sort of no longer a selector, really. Yeah, I wonder if they could have done more. And I wonder else wonder who else applied to be a selector. Obviously, they've gone with Greg Chappell, who came in when Rod Marsh resigned after the Hobart debacle. I've got a few guesses who might have applied. Warney, Dean Jones, Darren Berry, even Kevin Peterson. They might have all thrown their name in the ring. Well, as I've said before on this thing, it's ridiculous that they only pick ex-players. That you're, you're, The great hand-eye coordination that meant that you could play a cover drive better than someone else gives you no right to select a side better than someone else. Where's Warren Buffett? He should be one of our selectors. Nate yeah, Silver. Podcasters. Great yeah, podcasters. Obviously, but, um, great cricket podcasters. Get a CEO of a company who's turned the company around. You know, don't just get ex-players. That is the restructured selection panel for Australia. They will be under the 
the blowtorch coming into the ashes next summer. Now, there's also been a swathe of retirements, some of them more notable than others. I'll go through the, the four main ones, Adam Voges, Xavier Doherty, Chris Hartley, and the wild thing, Sean Tate, have all retired from cricket now. Uh, any memories that stand out from any of those players for you guys? My favourite memory of Sean Tate. Is this a Chris Hartley memory? Just, just joking. Sorry. Um, <laughs> have we got a Chris Hartley podcast coming up? <laughs> I th- actually, summer. actually, I think I saw uh, Chris Hartley my first summer here in Australia in the Sheffield Shield final, which was televised. And uh, you do have a playing, memory playing for the Queensland uh, Bulls, obviously. But uh, but what I was going to mention was uh, was Sean Tate. I guess I'm mentioning Brendan McCullum here for the second time in this podcast, but it was uh, 2010 in Christchurch, and Tate was bowling absolute just thunderbolts, like 155, getting up there to 160. And, and so McCullum took the decision to start scooping him rather than sort of trying to play down the ground, so to speak, and ended up getting a couple of good ones away, and they went for six. Uh, so, I mean, you ended up scoring 100. It was a classic game, actually. It was 200 plays 200 plus. But um, So I definitely remember... Sean Tate for that because it was almost like he there was no choice but to do that because he was just bowling so quick at the time and also something I only just recently learned um, is that he's actually got the record for the most wickets in a shield season um, in 0405 he took 65 wickets wow. and uh, so that explains a lot of the hype that was around him mm. at that time he had a very brief uh, career Sean Tate sort of he rose very quickly and then his body really just couldn't cope with the rigours of international cricket and he faded quite quickly yeah, he put a lot of shoulder into it, didn't he? I had, I had actually forgotten that he did do so well in the 2007 World Cup. And yeah. um, he was the sec- equal second leading wicket-taker in that tournament. And look back in the semi-final um, where Australia played South Africa. And, Smashed in that, like five for 60. Yeah, so that's a that's a pretty something that few cricketers can say. That I mean, mm. you know, Australia against South Africa in a semi-final of a World Cup, big game. Um, he stood up and massively um, contributed to a major success for Australia there. Xavier Doherty was the one-time number one one-day spinner in the country. Also was the spinner picked in the 2015 World Cup squad. But it's Adam Voges who really is one of the real... will throw up sort of this historical anomaly. I mean, if you look at his record, 20 tests, an average of almost 62. 31 one-day internationals, an average of almost 46. 7 T20 internationals, an average of 46. I mean, it's a phenomenal record. I mean, where does... He sort of fit now in the the scheme of Australian cricket. Is it just a statistical anomaly, or was he really good talent? Well, the the disappointing thing is the way that they do have the cutoffs is that he will appear in the tables of greatest batsmen ever. And at the moment, it goes Bradman and then Adam Voges, and I think that's unfair on every other player, but also on on Voges himself because he becomes a little bit of a a joke. And he was a you know his test test record is very very good. I think had he played a longer amount of test cricket his average would have dropped. But it might not have dropped ridiculously. He might have averaged in the high 40s or something in Test cricket. His first class average was 46.8. And you look back at some of the players that they picked instead of him during his heyday, players like Doolan and both Marshes, Quiney, Burns, Bailey, um, Marcus North, Cameron White, Phil Jakes, they probably should have picked him um, earlier than they did. Again, if you've got ex-players on the selection panel, you're not always going to get the right decisions. (laughs) That's very good. I think as well that there was a little bit of a perception that 
the runs he scored on Deboe against the West Indies were pretty easy because a lot of Aussies didn't see the the stuff over there. But actually, his runs on mm. Deboe were quite hard fought. That series in the West Indies, the tracks were up and down. So yes, he might have scored a couple of tons, you know, easy tons against the Kiwis and the the Windies <laughs> when they were down under. But there was some really hard fought runs in there. Probably though, the one slight you would have on Voges is. In the 2015 Ashes, where you really needed his experience, he probably was went a little missing. Yeah, yeah. but they all did, and he did. He did have a couple of good fifties in that series. It was difficult, but yeah, he could have done better there. Yeah, a lot of not outs as well. Twenty plus percent of your innings are not outs. It's going to bump the average, isn't it? So you know, it's it's one of those things. Like you say, I think he probably should have been picked earlier. And and but at the same time, I don't think he'll be upset if he's if he's, he's a got character. Five and, test hundreds. I mean, that's nothing to. To, no, you know, that's right. At, you know, that's, so well yeah. done, Adam Voges. Yeah, good on you. Speaking of well done, I say this with really difficult to get out, but congratulations, Victoria! Three Shield titles in a row. This year they occupied 289 overs in the first innings of the game, so trying to kill cricket. But well done, Victoria. That's three titles in a row. There is a long way to go though to match New South Wales' nine titles in a row. But it sort of poses two questions out of the Shield final. Firstly, what the hell were they playing in Alice Springs for? I mean, we know why, because there was no grounds in Victoria. But this has to be the worst ad for the premier first-class competition in this country that they would play in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's a little bit bizarre. Um, but I suppose I mean, If you can't host it in your state, then you let the other side have it. Well, I suppose they thought... If we 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 can't play at the MCG, and I think the Junction Oval's being um, done up, yeah, done up. So then, but I mean Sydney, I, I don't know Melbourne well enough. In Sydney, you'd have five or six grounds that you could play it at. I think they just thought, okay, well, we might as well take it to a place. I think it's that- some pigskin game. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> They're playing Victoria that takes up most of the grounds. But I'm sure they could have found grounds, but they just said, well, we'll give it to Alice Springs to promote the game there. And you know, you can understand why they do that. But I agree with you, Menes. It does devalue it. What also devalues it? Just looking at the table here, you know, Victoria topping the table on 1060.3 South Australia 1047.2 I mean why don't they have a simpler um, nice easy points system rather than yeah what does it mean I mean <laughs> it just seems weird <laughs> what does it mean and what does it mean when you're sending you know Alice Springs that's where you send the English like the Ashes touring team to warm up you, you, you it's don't just put... a terrible look you know <laughs> they, just, they cut awful. the competition down they pull players out they play games in New Zealand now they play the final in Alice Springs so well done Victoria three in a row try and match New South Wales nine titles in a row what I'd like to see though is the day that Menes takes over Australian cricket what will happen is that when Victoria hosts the final, he'll say, no, it will be at the MCG. I think the MCG got 200,000 people for the first week of our Aussie rules fixtures. Menas would have had it. No, nope, we will have the Sheffield Shield final at the Melbourne yeah. Cricket Ground and AFL can get lost. Yep, <laughs> yep I'm telling you, yep. I want be, the MCG just for cricket. It'll be us three and a few pigeons and that'll be it. Great cricket though. Caterers. Get rid of drop-in wickets, go back to the, the classic tracks that take turn. Uh, so that was the Shield season all over. And uh, we're coming to the end of the season of the Australian Cricket Podcast. Now, as I said, we're going to have the Autumn Series, but I'll still be taking emails. So if you want to get in touch with the show, we're on Gmail, Pod. that's A-U-S cricketpod at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast. Tell all your cricket-loving friends to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Podomatic, whatever app they listen to the show on. Uh, please go and leave a review on iTunes, even though the promotion's over. It's great for us to get some feedback about what you think of the show. 
And we'll be back in a minute with our highlights of the summer. No, it has changed for sure. Um, I I thought that was the case, but it has changed for sure. Um, you know, as I said in the heat of the battle, yes, you want to be competitive, but um, yeah. I've been proven wrong. The thing I said before the first test, that has certainly changed and you won't hear me say that ever again. Uh, when, I, when I've done well in the past, again people have spoken about me. When I haven't done well, I obviously expect them to come out and start saying all sort of things, but very easy to sit at home and write a blog or speak behind the mic. Welcome back to the show. That was Virat Kohli, another very happy listener of this podcast. Uh, he took a very distinct shot at us in that show, uh, in that comment there saying, you know, standing behind your mic. So obviously he has listened to the podcast and not happy with some of my comments. Well, he's welcome to join us on here and see if he can, you know, if he can be entertaining. Come on here, Virat. <laughs> All right, guys. So we're going to end the podcast for this summer with our highlights of the cricketing summer. So, Bob, I start with you. What are your two favourite things from the cricketing summer? This was a tough one. I really had to think about it um, because there's so much, so, it was so many ups and downs, wasn't it? It's been so long actually as well. If we go back to the sort of the Matador Cup and all the way through to now. Even and, back to that one day series in South Africa where yeah, that's right. Australia B went over there. That's yeah. officially actually no longer happened, that one. Thank yeah. You. Oh, I'd forgotten about it. So, I forgot um, about the Indian tour. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but I settled on, on two things, right? Uh, I think the first one is, is really important, and I think it's going to be important for the next decade. And even though you've bagged him slightly in this show already, but for me, Matt Renshaw's debut in that third test against South Africa, you know, sweeping changes through the team. They, they pull this youngster out of nowhere. And, and not even uh, the, the first innings, actually the second innings, where I think Australia needed... 180 or something to win the game and after being thumped in the first two matches right so context we'd been without Chris Rogers for some time looking for someone to partner Warner for the long term and this guy this is what I look for in in a test opener is someone who's just going to put his head down you know leave it outside off make the bowlers bowl to him you know he's got two three shots I'm going to play those I'm not going to do anything else you're not going to get anything flashy out of me and he took 137 balls he scored 34 not out but he got Australia home and won the game. And that, too, I thought, look, they found him. I was actually there in Adelaide for that, that game, and I thought Renshaw was trying to keep the game going for one more day because it was sort of <laughs> coming up to the end of the fourth day. And, you know, it was getting sort of longer and longer, and we were just thinking, we're going to have to come back for, you know, four runs tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, so that's my first one. Um, and then secondly, my second highlight of the summer was just because it went so against the run of play. Um, so we've heard for, you know, the, the the talk around the traps is that Nathan Lyon's the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time. And we've had this guy on the sideline for so long, Stephen O'Keefe. You know, he's a, he's a huge support uh, fan club on this podcast. When you look at Macker and yourself, and people have been calling for Sox inclusion in this team for a long time. And then to go to India, all odds against them, takes 12 wickets in the first match. Australia win the match, and it just sets up, as you say, Paul, one of the most amazing cricket series ever. And for that, you know, that was such a highlight, just because it was so unexpected. I agree, and the fact that we thrashed them, humiliated them, was amazing. Incredible. Yeah, really good highlights. Uh, Bob, I agree with you about Renshaw. I mean, to to take away all the things I've said, you know, to have such a a player that values his wicket, brings such joy, joy to the way he plays the game... The fact that he's a pommy is a slight downer, but apart from that, what a what a great first season for him. Now, Paul, what are your cricketing highlights from the sixteen seventeen 
Australian summer? Well, I mean, it's hard to go past Colin Munro's performance in the Plunkett Shield. Uh, I can't believe God, he's not on the New Zealand side. But that wasn't what made it my list. My number one <laughs> was... Um, the Everyone other... is right now Googling yeah. Plunkett Shield. Yeah, and Colin Munro probably. He's <laughs> got the second highest batting average in the history of New Zealand. New Zealand? New Zealand cricket. Um, and the and second worst technique as well in the history of New Zealand cricket. Well, it's, it's all the runs that runs are the currency. Now, um, for me, it was the BBL final. I went to Perth for it. I'd um, never seen a game at the Wacker, and it's such a much better ground live than it is on TV. Glorious, beautiful Perth sunshine and this really parochial home crowd. And yeah. then Mitchell Johnson, just so exciting to see him live again, and um, just a, a wonderful spectacle and a wonderful, um, a wonderful occasion. Um, I think. I, there was a moment in the in the women's BBL final beforehand where the crowd was fairly small and uh, there was a wide bowl by New South Wales and the roar from the Perth crowd, uh, sorry, wide bowl by the Sydney Sixers, the roar from the Perth crowd greeting this wide was 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 amazing. I thought this is a really um, a really hometown crowd. It was great. So the Wackers going going to go, but I'm pleased that I saw it for for um, in its all its glory. And the others we touched upon it already in the podcast, but Glenn Maxwell coming to the side, scoring a hundred, um, basically cementing his position in the side for the short term, looking good in scoring forty. A vindication odd. for your support, long time support. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it is. It's um, <laughs> it was it was nice. I mean, I'd have I'd have him opening, but um, in know, all three forms, in all three mm. forms. But it's getting closer to that. Um, uh, still a way to go. But yeah, it was great to see him do that, and I just hope that he can really now um, fulfil that promise and become um, uh, a bloke who scores lots of runs and gets a few wickets for Australia um, in the years to come. Well, Paul, I echo those sentiments about Glenn Maxwell and my two highlights of the cricketing summer, and I certainly had a lot to sift through. David Warner's 100 before lunch went very close, but I've whittled it down to uh, the B- Big Bash League Derby Day at the SCG. We had the double header, the WBBL and the BBL. It was the Sixers v the Thunder, and it was a beautiful day at the SCG. A warm January afternoon, beautiful light in the air, a real buzz, a sort of excitement you could almost touch, and and the way the sort of crowd was rolling in as the women's game finished, and and just the way the the crowd came to life as the lights took over. It was just a, a really magic night at the SCG and sort of an ad for everything that is amazing about the Big Bash League. And then finally, my highlight, and, and it's a little bit of a personal one, is it's the first time this summer that I've been to Adelaide at all. And I went twice for the, the day-night test and a Big Bash game. And, and there's something magical about leaving the Adelaide Oval at night after seeing a wonderful game of cricket. Because it's kind of a, a, a quietish town, when the Adelaide Oval's lit up, it really does feel like the everything, all the action in town is at that oval and, and a sort of the country town feeling of leaving this sort of light stadium and wandering off it through the park and across the river into the quiet Adelaide night, having seen, well, in my case, a couple of great cricket matches it was just just an amazing city, a great ground. It seems to sort of encapsulate history and atmosphere and modern uh, facilities. So Adelaide at night for me is my second cricketing highlight of this summer. Good stuff. And in, in a few months' time, it's going to host the first day-night Ashes Test match um, as England come out next summer, and that would be one to look forward to as well. Yeah, I think the Pommies will love that. There's certainly a few beers drunk on the Adelaide Hill in the afternoon there, so our English guests will certainly get into that, I would imagine. 
It's going to be a massive summer. Hopefully, New Perth Stadium's ready for it. Could set some um, could set some attendance records if England starts to perform well. Tickets are gone on sale as usual. They're uh, exorbitantly expensive, but there you go. Yeah. So, Paul, you put up a tweet that if you were to go to the Sydney Test for all five days with a friend, with three friends, with three friends, and sit undercover, it would be like three grand or four grand. What? Yeah, three grand. Um, so to be guaranteed a seat undercover. So the um, <coughs> for one ticket, the Sydney prices are. and 30 And to that, uh, you have to add a $6.60 fee as well. So I'm saying, from what I've seen in the past, only the top two categories guarantee you an underground seat, an undercover seat. So $149 for four four people for five days, adding on the $6.60 fee was $3,013 to be guaranteed undercover for all five days. Now, I know that they're going to get big crowds and I know that that's when they make all their money and I know that the, the cheapest price, $30, they're saying that's really good and it is. But for me, if I'm going to go to the cricket, hot day in Sydney, I don't want to sit um, in the baking sun for eight hours. I want to have some cover. You're still getting terrible food and mid-strength beer, so it's not as though you're in the lap of luxury. And I just wish they would lower the prices just a bit. Well, that's a depressing yeah. thought to end the show on. Well, that's a premium that you pay to um, escape Channel 9, though, isn't it? <laughs> you know, that's the that's, that's how you escape yeah. Michael Clark. Well, well, let's, sorry, Peterson. I'll finish up one positive then. When I was in England in 2013 at Lords, Australia got thrashed, and Siddle was the only bowler who kind of stood up. That same Peter Siddle from 2013, if he was warped here, um, would not make the Australian side. I uh, don't think he'd make the, the Australian second side as things stand. He'd be in the Australian third side. Such is the strength of our newfound um, fast bowling stocks. It's going to be absolutely exciting. Yeah, touch wood. Keep them in bubble wrap for the next uh, next few months. Well, I guess that's it for the Australian Cricket Podcast for the 2016-17 yeah. summer. I want to thank all the panellists and guests that have come on the show. Thanks, Bob and Paul, uh, for coming on tonight's episode. Uh, it's been a great summer of cricket. Paul and I had a great time doing the Big Smash Cricket Podcast. And now I guess we'll, the Autumn Series is coming. I've got Alison Mitchell lined up, Mark Howard, a couple of other great interviews there. So it's going to be really good. Uh, some classic podcasts are coming while the IPL is out. And we'll be back for the Champions Trophy. Thanks so much for all the feedback. Thanks, guys, and uh, enjoy the IPL. Hey, Bob, how do you watch the IPL? Right, so if you've listened to the show this long, I guess you're an absolute cricket nut, um, and you probably already know what to do. But if you don't, it's not being screened on Foxtel or any of the traditional um, mediums. You need to go to cricketgateway.com, and you can buy uh, for the entire tournament. Uh, I think it's twenty four ninety nine, um, and you can watch the entire tournament. So uh, save you from going to any of those dodgy streams that are going to uh, put a virus on your computer. All right, well... That's it. That's the break in the international cricket calendar, the break in the podcast now. And thanks again for listening, and I'll be back with the Autumn Series on April the 10th. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series.